0: For more information about Christian Assembly, follow us on social media or visit our website at cafamily.net. Well, usually when people come and speak, they share a little about themselves. But I'm pretty sure most of you know a lot about me. But I'll just give a little brief about myself because it's amazing that I meet people that are new all the time. And then I find out they're not new. They've been here for years. But because they don't drop children off in the back where I'm at, I don't get to know them. So I think they're new. So I'm Kristen Bridges, and I was born into this church. And Pastor Bill's been my pastor since I was six years old. And so uh, all the good word that's in me, Pastor Bill put there, I'm so grateful, grateful for his life Grateful for his ministry Grateful for his He's partnered with me personally through the years To help me spiritually to get to where I am And you know There's just not enough words I can say Of thanks for that There's not enough words you can say to somebody To thank them for being a good pastor For, for, well I'm not going to tell you how old I am But a lot, a lot of years Since I was six years old And I'm definitely older than six now so I grew up in this church. I started helping serve. I helped my mom teach Sunday school when I was little. And then when I was um, a, young, a young junior high, I helped on the worship and praise team here. And then I met this fantastic, good-looking guy, strong, intelligent, brave. Was there anything I'm, was there anything I'm missing, Well, <laughs> What was the other one? he's going to let me he's going to let me slide with a few things that i missed i met this great guy and we got married we went to rama to go to bible school and when i got back from rama i was super excited i had like a heart full of knowledge and a head full of knowledge and a heart full of i was young we'll just say that and i came back and i was really excited to serve in the church and i went to my dad and i said i'm back from bible school and i'm here to serve give me a job And so I thought he was going to say, yeah, you can have this job or that job. And what he said really surprised me. He said, the church needs spring cleaned. You can start on Monday. (laughs) And so I started spring cleaning the church with my grandma. Let me tell you, if you knew my grandma, she rooted out every bit of the evil dirt that was in this church. I mean, we scrubbed this church from top to bottom. And then from there, there was a a need with the youth, and so Will and I, Along with Brother Al, Laura, and the Umsteads, we packed up a big handful of teenagers and we went off into the woods to tent. Remember that Brother Al? We went off into the woods to tent and camp. And I will tell you, I hate tenting, and that was the last time I ever tented again. I love Brother Al, but tenting is not for me. You're just cold and wet all the time, even if it's dry and 90. So we went tenting, and we went. We served with the youth, and it was great. And then. Will and I started to preach and evangelize and and travel, and we did that for several years, often living out of our van in between churches because we just didn't have any money for hotels. And uh, I remember one time in particular, we were traveling in the south. It was early spring, and so we were living in our van in between one church and another, and we had to get a shower before we went to the next church. So we bathed in a creek. And I will never forget how cold the water is on your head in early spring in Virginia. So cold you get an instant headache. So we bathed in the creek. One of us was the lookout, and we would holler if we saw someone coming, you know, that way, hiking down the path or whatever. And then before you know it, um, we had a little baby girl, Mariah, our first baby, and she just brought us so much joy. But having a baby made it harder for me to travel all the time, especially it made it harder living in a van. So... We'll continue to travel a little bit. And once again, I was here more often to serve in the church. And we started the bus ministry, which was a fantastic outreach. So many faithful volunteers. I mean, just so many people in this church poured their heart into those kids. And it was a beautiful, beautiful time. And in the process, then we add a second child, our little sweet Daniel, who just, he just was a child who gave me joy from the moment he was born. Just the minute he came into my life, he brought me so much joy. <laughs> He's given a little yes yeah signal. And to this day, he still gives us so much joy. We had Daniel, and then before you know it, there was a position available here at the church. The children's minister, Jen Hooley, was getting married and she was going to move. And I really felt like I should go and ask the pastor if I could have this job. You notice this time I was smarter. I just bypassed my dad. <laughs> I didn't want to clean the church again, to be honest. So I went straight to Pastor Bell, and I had a whole list of arguments prepared as to why he should give me a chance to do this job. And I said, Pastor, <clears throat> I'd really love the opportunity to do this children's ministry job. And he said, sure. And I said, listen, I've been serving here since I was 15, very faithfully. Anything that you've asked me to do, I've done it, pastor. And he said, yeah, you can have the job. And I said, listen, if you'll just give me a chance, I I'll do it for six months. And if in six months, you don't think it's going well at the end of six months, we can just part ways. No problem. No questions asked. I'll go back to volunteering. He said, Kristen, you can have the job. I think you should have the job as well. So from then till now, I've been serving with your children and and then eventually with your youth. And it's been a real honor. I have not been the perfect children's pastor because there are no perfect people, right? But I have loved your children perfectly. I love your children so much. And now the Lord has sent us again. He sent us the Wells family and they have a real passion for unchurched children as well. And I do. And so they've been bringing kids on the van to Sunday school. And I'll tell you, I just I just love kids, all kids. But there's something about a little kid that wants to get to church so bad that they get on a van with a stranger and travel to an unknown place. There's something about that. They're just like little sponges. And so we just pour love into these kids, and there's a blessing in doing something for someone that can never repay you. I mean, it's fun and it's nice to do things for your kids and your family, but when you do something for someone who you know will never have the opportunity to pay you back, there is such sweet grace in that. And so we're starting that. And you know what? My prayer is that we'll eventually have, be able to bring every kid in 25 or 50 miles that wants to come to church that can't get here. Otherwise, that we'll have a whole fleet of buses and vans and we'll bring them so that everyone in our area can hear about Jesus and about how he can change their life and about how he will never leave them and never forsake them. Amen? Amen. Okay, enough about me. Today I'm going to give you a little message. I'm going to try to be brief because I'm used to talking to kids and their attention span is about 25 minutes. So you've probably already made it through a good portion of my message today. So congratulations. <clears throat> the title of my message today is Never Be Afraid to Trust an Unknown Future to a Known God. And that's actually a quote by Cory Ten Boom, who's one of my heroes of the Holocaust. And I think it just so powerfully talks about... Uh, or. Wraps up what we're going to share today. So if you have your Bible, open to the book of Isaiah. If you have your phone, scroll to the book of Isaiah. I love the way that Isaiah beautifully illustrates this message. And I relate it today to trusting God with our lives. I want to talk to you about a particular chapter today. If you have your Bible and you can turn to Isaiah 54 or scroll there. But let me just give you some context here. Isaiah, by the way, the name means the Lord is salvation. What a great name, and what a great name to know if you're trusting God with your whole life. Amen. Now, Isaiah was a prophet of the southern kingdom of Judah during the reign of four kings. It was a ministry that went over a span half a century, so over fifty years and This is about seven thirty nine to six eighty six bc if you 're a person who likes to know where it fits into history, like my little Mariah does, she likes to know where it fits in the timeline and Isaiah spoke under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit to the backslidden, idolatrous condition of god 's people and there were so many things wrong in the nation, so many things their religion had become a sham there was injustice they were mistreating each other there was oppression there was immorality greed pride selfishness you name it bad things and it was happening there so in the early parts of Isaiah he just says this he says sick 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 the whole body is sick from head to toe this is the people of God that he's talking about he's saying they're all sick And in the course of the book, particularly in the first 39 chapters, he foretells as a prophet the coming judgment of God. You see, the Jewish nation, the people of Judah, they were going to be sent into exile remember this the babylonian captivity and it was gonna last for seventy years but god enabled isaiah to look ahead and to see this coming judgment which wasn't going to happen until decades later the babylonians were not knocking at the door when isaiah was writing this but god gave him this vision of what was going to happen he prophesied this. he said there is going to be an exile this is intended to be a warning from god basically he's saying repent so there's no need for judgment So he told about the judgment, and then God enabled him to look even further past the judgment, beyond the 70-year exile, to see the day years later when the exiles would return to Jerusalem, to Zion, long after Isaiah's lifetime, and to see hundreds of years even beyond that, the coming of Messiah, God's suffering servant, who would take on himself the sins of the people so that they would be redeemed. And not only that, but even beyond that, God let Isaiah have a glimpse of the coming reign and rule of Christ. This time, not God's suffering servant, but God's exalted servant, right? Who would bring the new heavens and the new earth? Praise the Lord. So you have this entire span of creation, the fall, redemption, new creation, the whole consummation of God's plan. Well, Isaiah saw the whole thing. Now, he didn't see it in detail. He saw it in kind of a hazy way. In fact, some of the Jews who would read this in Jesus' time, they mixed up, they kind of conflated the idea of the suffering servant and the exalted servant, and they thought when Jesus came, well, if he's the Messiah, then he's going to get rid of the Romans. He's going to throw off our oppressors. They put two ideas together that shouldn't have been together. They were combining them. They didn't see that there were seasons, and there were different times, that God's people were in this current condition. They'd be exiled for 70 years, and then they would come back to the land, and hundreds of years later, the Messiah would come to the earth, God in the flesh, you know, through a story, to suffer and die for the sins of mankind. Then he would go back to heaven he would come long after that back to the earth to rule and preside over the new heavens and the new earth so just follow me i'm just giving you some context real quick all of this is told in kind of a cloudy foggy sort of way you don't see clear details in fact some of the commentators debate about is this millennium is this going to happen in the millennium is it this or that it's not clear but you get the big picture you get the sense that god wins and we win amen Amen. So I don't think there's any Old Testament book that gives you a greater sense of the span of God's whole story that he's writing for his people. His whole eternal plan to rescue fallen man. So I'm going to give you a little clue here as you read Isaiah. Sometimes it's helpful to have Isaiah open and to also have Revelation open. Because these books have a lot of parallels. There are things promised in Isaiah that are fulfilled in Revelation. There, there are even scriptures from Isaiah that are quoted in Revelation. So in Revelation, we see the climax of God's great story, right? We see the fulfillment of all of his promise. So that's some context for Isaiah. So let's go back to Isaiah chapter 54. Now, I'm not going to do this passage full justice. I just want to give you kind of an overview, a sense of what we experience in the chapter and how it relates to the theme of we can trust God with our whole life. Amen. So as we walk through this chapter, and you could do this in other parts of Isaiah as well, chapter 62 as well has a lot of the same things. I'm hopeful, I'm praying that today you'll get a sense of God's bigger picture and that you can trust him with your today, with your tomorrow, with your forever. So look at the first word in Isaiah 54, at least in my translation. Now, I'm going to use the Christian, Christian standard Bible today. I generally don't use this translation, but I'm going to use it today because I like the way it illustrates what Isaiah is saying. So the first word in the translation is rejoice. Now, in other translations, the first word is sing. Sing, rejoice, whatever you want. But what follows that first word seems to be anything but a cause for joy, doesn't it? Rejoice, childless one who did not give birth. Burst into joy and shout, you who have not been in labor. Now pause there. Can you imagine looking at a woman who's struggled with infertility, maybe years of it, a woman who's longed to have children, but never has been able to. Perhaps she's been able to get pregnant. Perhaps she's miscarried several times. Perhaps she's had, you know, a lot of, a lot of medical problems that go along with this. Can you imagine looking at her and saying, rejoice, shout, sing for joy. I mean, it seems uncaring and insensitive, doesn't it? It seems almost cruel to say that to her. How can she sing? How can she rejoice? How can she burst into song when her pain is so great? Now, that might not be your pain. Maybe it is your pain. Maybe your pain is something very different. But the question remains the same. How can you rejoice? How can you burst into song when you're experiencing pain, disappointment, discouragement, rejection, unfulfilled dreams? The reason the people of God can rejoice, even in the midst of their barrenness, is because the outcome eventually will be different than this current situation, right? That's how we can have joy. So when they rejoice, when they burst into song, they do it by faith, not by what they can see but what they know God has promised to them. There's an astonishing promise in this verse as it continues that this barren woman would in the future be given a reason to sing that her longing to have this child would be fulfilled. Look at the next part of the verse. For the children of the desolate one will be more than the children of the married woman, says the Lord. So Israel's urged, as we are, to walk and live by faith in the promises of God, to make room for the promises of God to be fulfilled, to live now as if we know they'll be fulfilled, right? Not to walk by sight, what we can see in this moment, but to walk by faith. To this barren woman, he says this in verse 2. Enlarge the sight of your tent. Get a bigger house. Get more bedrooms. That's my paraphrase. And let your tent curtains be stretched out. Don't hold back. Lengthen your ropes and drive your pegs deep. Plan to have a large family. That's what he's saying to this woman who's never been able to have children. And that's what he's saying to the people of God who are hopeless and in despair and feel their story has a hopeless ending. He's saying, no, live by faith as if you know your circumstances are going to change. That's what he's saying to us. Verse 3, he says, For you will spread out to the right and to the left, and your descendants will dispossess nations and inhabit the desolate cities. He's saying to this barren childless woman, a picture of Israel, Judah at this point, you will become fruitful and prosper. You're going to be a multitude. That's going to take a miracle, isn't it? And that's exactly what God is going to do. This is going to be supernatural. It's not something that you can make happen in your own human ability. It's something that God's going to make happen. He's going to turn his tide for his chosen ones. Though they'd been barren, though they'd been childless, they're going to build, they're going to bear a multitude of children. They're going to spread throughout the earth and their descendants will be triumphant and productive. That's what verse one to three tells us. The situation God's people find themselves in now is going to be transformed. It looks this way now, but it's not going to stay that way. Look at verse four. For you will not, do not be afraid, for you will not be put to shame. Do not be humiliated, for you will not be disgraced. For you will forget the shame of your youth and you will no longer remember the disgrace of your widowhood. Now the metaphor changes here a little bit. Israel's present plight is likened at first to an infertile woman, right? We read that now to a destitute widow and just ahead we're going to see she's likened to a rejected wife no woman wants to be in any of those positions that's a helpless hopeless discouraging situation it's a desperate situation isn't it so you see the terms that describe what israel's going through desolate afraid put to shame humiliated disgraced deserted wounded rejected and later in this chapter he even says storm-tossed not comforted oppressed terrorized. It's a horrible set of circumstances to be in right now, but God, but God, everything looks different when you bring God into the situation, doesn't it? We don't have to do it on our own and he doesn't want us to do it on our own. And guess what? It won't work out if you do it on your own, but God. And so in verse five, it says, indeed, your husband is your maker. That's a capital M there. The shame and disgrace of their widowhood will be removed, for your husband is your maker. God is the faithful husband, even when we're unfaithful, which is why she was likened to a widow, because she'd been unfaithful to God. He's saying, It's your sins have caused this. This is your fault that you're in this situation. But I'm God and I'm faithful. I'm your maker. I'm going to be the one who redeems you from this bad situation. He says, his name is the Lord of armies and the Holy One of Israel is your redeemer. He is called the God of the whole earth. Verse five. Wow. Right. The God of the whole earth is on your side. Now, the people of God are in serious trouble here. God doesn't say to them, hey, let's you get a plan, figure it out, get together, huddle up, find a way out of this thing. Okay, I gave you all brains. Figure out how to get out of this. He says, you may feel deserted, but you're not deserted. You may feel like the situation will never change and that it's sent to ruin you, but I'm telling you, it won't ruin you. He's saying... I'm the Lord of armies, the holy one of Israel, your redeemer, the God of the whole earth. And he cares for his people. He's not insensitive to what we go through. He wasn't insensitive to what they went through, even though they had been idolatrous and wicked and, and just all kind of terrible stuff. He didn't turn his, he didn't turn his back and he didn't desert them forever. Verse six says, for the Lord has called you like a wife deserted and wounded in spirit. This is the rejected woman picture here. A wife of one's youth when she is rejected, says your God. The Lord has called you, this barren woman, this destitute widow, this rejected wife. The Lord has called you. See, Israel's sins have caused Israel to go into this Babylonian captivity into exile, right? But God doesn't rub their noses in their failure. He wants them, he points it out because he wants them to acknowledge it. He wants them to repent from it. But he also promises in order to motivate them, he promises that his grace and his mercy would restore them and it would utterly change the entire trajectory of their future. How about that? How about when we've been in a situation and all of us have where we've done something and it just devastates our life? God's saying, don't stay there. I'll help you out. You turn the minute that you turn to me. I will utterly change the trajectory of your future. I will put you on a new path. God is the one who can light your way. God is the one who can bring you out of whatever storm it is that you're in. He's the only one. We can't do it. Now, it says that he he said this to motivate them to repentance, which reminds me of one of my favorite scriptures in the Bible, which is Romans 2, 4. It's the kindness of the Lord that leads us to repentance. I mean, I I just love that scripture. God's just not, you did this, blah, blah, blah. He's just not like that, is he? He says, hey, look, you messed up, but just turn around and we're going to fix this thing together. That's what God says. That's the kind of faithful, loving God. Now, this is about to get real good here. So he says this collectively, corporately to his people, but I believe that this can be applied to our individual lives as well. You know, when we feel like our lives are falling apart, whatever it is, I think God's saying, I'm going to give you hope. I'm going to give you a future that's not like your present. Who here wants a future that's not like their present? Every one of us, I believe, even if things are going pretty well for you, I think every one of us can say, I'd like a future that's better than my present. Amen? That's what God says in verse seven. He says, I deserted you for a brief moment, but I will take you back with abundant compassion. Look at that word compassion, because it's going to come back several times in this passage, which is all the more amazing in light of the way God has described the sinfulness and the rebellion and the idolatry of his people, right? They've forsaken him, but he says, I'm going to take you back with abundant compassion in a surge of anger. I hid my face from you for a moment. Now, that moment was the 70-year captivity, right? The Babylonian exile. But even before it happens, God is saying, but look what I'm going to do after that. He says, I hid my face for you from a moment, but I will have compassion on you with everlasting love, says the Lord, your Redeemer. That phrase, everlasting love, by the way, it comes from the Hebrew word hesed, H-E-S-E-D. And that word means the covenant-keeping loyal faithful love of god oh that blessed me so much i'm going to say it again it means the covenant keeping loyal faithful love of god he can never not be that way to you that's just who he is he says i will have compassion on you with everlasting love says the lord your redeemer by the way the end of verse 6 says your god the end of verse 8 says the lord your redeemer the end of verse 10 says your compassionate lord that says to me when you're in trouble Listen to what God says don't listen to what your circumstances are saying don't listen to what the people around you are saying certainly don't turn on the news. It says listen to what God says because he is compassionate and redeeming and faithful. So God it seems like in this passage he's deserted his people and he's hidden his face from them in discipline. But his anger is but for a brief moment in verse 7 and verse 8 for a moment. What will last forever is not his anger is not his discipline not his chastening chastening but his compassion is what will last forever his covenant love his said, that's what will last forever though they've sinned against him and they rightly deserve the wrath that they're suffering he's going to have mercy on them why because they deserve it no they don't deserve it at all they've been entirely wicked it's because it's his nature he is your compassionate lord that's what verse 10 tells us. And speaking of his covenant, his character, he says in verse 9, For this is like the days of Noah to me, God says, when I swore that the water of Noah would never flood the earth again. Now, Noah was a judgment era, right? He's talking about going back to that period of judgment. He says, I swore it would ne- that I would never flood the earth again. So have I sworn now, God's covenant, that I will not be angry with you or rebuke you. Then verse 10, one of the most amazing verses in the scripture says, though the mountains move and the hills shake, my love, my has my eternal everlasting covenant keeping love will not be removed from you. And my covenant of peace will not be shaken, says your compassionate Lord. This is why we need to counsel our hearts according to God's word, right? When everything looks like the mountains are moving and the hills are shaking, we need to counsel our hearts about what kind of love God has for us. The kind of promises that he's made and the covenant that he has with us. Their love has been fickle. They have left him, right? They've went after other gods. But his love is steadfast and unchanging. No matter what they do, he's going to keep his promises. His love will not be removed from them and nothing they can do, nothing anyone else can do will ever shake, threaten, or nullify his covenant of peace. Wow. Wow. Thank you, Jesus, right? Thank you, Jesus. So he's used these word pictures, three of them, the analogies of a childless, barren woman, a destitute widow, and a rejected wife to describe his people. And now as we go to verse 11, he talks about the condition of Jerusalem, the capital city, the place where the people come to worship the Lord. So Jerusalem is often used as a symbol or a picture of uh, people coming into the presence of God. So he uses it as a picture of the capital city and the city's been under siege. It's been ransacked by enemies. And he says this too is going to change when Messiah brings his kingdom to earth because of his compassion. So in verse 11, he says, poor Jerusalem, storm tossed and not comforted. Now that's a picture of the judgment to come when the Babylonians would come and when they would place Jerusalem under siege, it would be widespread havoc and destruction. I mean, the holy place where God met with his people, it was going to be destroyed, right? Totally ransacked. And the people would grieve the loss. They should have grieved the loss before they sinned, right? So that this never happened. So they should have grieved the loss before they went after other gods and they wouldn't be in this situation. But God's wanting to discipline them just so that they'll return to him. God's discipline of people is not punitive. It's restorative. Right? It's not inflicting or intended to punish someone. Now, have you ever, I'm just going to tell a story. My children have had wonderful, wonderful teachers, wonderful teachers. I mean, in Christian school, in public school, in homeschool, a great teacher, in cyber school. (laughs) Danny's shaking his head no. That only worked for about a year. It didn't work for a year. Hi, Dan. My kids have had fantastic teachers, but we've had one or two, and all of my kids' teachers, that maybe could have used a little more compassion. There was one teacher in particular who seemed to love to punish children. And this teacher was real young, didn't have any kids, so, you know, I cut the, the girl some slack, but my kid would come home and tell me these stories all the time about how mean this teacher was. This teacher's so mean. And, you know, I had this policy where I didn't like to undermine authority with my kids. So if they complained about a teacher, I would say, well, you do the right thing and then you won't have to worry about the teacher being mean. You know, if you do what you're supposed to do, everything will be fine for you. So I really just kind of went with that. But then towards the end of the year, I went in to help with a classroom party. And when I walked in, there was another mother already there, and she passed out these little sticky frogs. Have you ever seen these sticky frogs? They're kind of gummy, and you can fling them at something and they'll stick. So this other mother got there early, and she passed out these sticky frogs. And, and there's a class of uh, little boys, elementary age, And and you can just imagine what happened with these little boys with the sticky frogs. To be honest, if you gave my husband, my dad, and my brother-in-law sticky frog all right now, same thing. They'd be flinging them. They'd be on the ceiling. They'd be on the walls. This is the nature of men, even as little boys. So it's not a bad thing. It's playful, and it's lovely. They took their sticky frogs, and they just started flinging them at the ceiling. Now, I mean, the sticky frogs are just, they're garbage. They're junk. They're they are going to fall off the ceiling eventually because the stick doesn't last that long. But this teacher became incensed, and she started yelling at these little boys in this room. And I was watching her thinking, she's enjoying this. She told those little boys in that room none of them could participate in the party. The party didn't even start yet. We just got there. Nobody could participate in the party. They had to sit in chairs and watch the party because they took these little frogs and flung them at the ceiling. Now I'm thinking, this lady is not nice. She is enjoying punishment. Now, if you have been raised by someone who enjoys punishing or if you have had a lot of people in your life, maybe teachers, who've enjoyed punishing, sometimes people get a wrong impression of God, that God enjoys punishing, that God is like King Triton up in the sky holding a lightning bolt, and his eyes are searching the earth not to help and strongly support those who love him. No. They get a picture that God is in heaven holding a lightning bolt. As soon as you get out of line, you're getting it. Zap, right? This is the picture I have of God, but it's not true. You can think it, you can say it, other people can preach it, it's not true. The Bible says that God loves us, and we see all throughout the scripture that he doesn't punish us to be mean or to inflict pain, it's just to bring us back, to get us back on the right path, right? One more thing, when Danny was little, he really wanted to peel a carrot. And you know, a carrot peeler is pretty sharp. And he kept asking me, please, let me, I mean, he's a persistent little guy. Please, I want to peel a carrot. He was probably four or five, and and I I kept saying, Dan, you can't peel a carrot. It's, It's too sharp. Please, I want to peel a carrot. I want to peel a carrot. I want to peel a carrot. So you know where this is going. He tries to peel the carrot, takes off a strip of his skin, and he's crying. In that moment, did I want to punish him for peeling the carrot? No, I felt bad because he was hurt. I knew that it was what he had done that caused him to be hurt, and it was his disobedience that caused him to be hurt. But did it make me want to punish him and lash out in anger and make him suffer more? No. That's how God is. God loves us. God will correct us to get us back to where we need to be. Of course, I told him, you may never touch the carrot peeler again, or you will be in severe trouble. But at that point, I didn't have to tell him. He knew. He had that little finger to prove it, right? God is like that. God doesn't want to punish us. He will punish us. He will correct us to get us back in line. But he's not, he doesn't get any pleasure out of seeing us suffer. That's what, I, that's what I'm trying to say. So, verse 11 says, I will set your stones... Oh, Jerusalem, poor Jerusalem in black mortar and lay your foundations in lapis lazuli. I will make your fortifications out of rubies, your gates out of sparkling stones and all your walls out of precious stones. Doesn't that sound like the tables are being turned now? Now, the city's been ravaged and plundered, and it's going to be rebuilt in exquisite fashion and precious gems from the foundation to the gates to the wall. Does that remind you of something else in Revelation 21, where we hear the vision that was giving John of the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven, and its foundations, its stones, its walls were all laid with precious stones and jewels. Now, the Old Testament, that temple was going to be restored, but that testament, I mean, that temple. It wasn't going to be as great, because the Bible tells us that the old men came back and they wept, right? Because they remembered how beautiful that temple had been. Sometimes when you fix something, it's just not the same. If you ever had a car that gets so badly damaged in a wreck, a lot of times they just R-title that car, and you just can't fix it. It just can't be fixed. Well, they fixed the temple, but it wasn't the same. They wept about it. But the holy city of God that's going to come down, the New Jerusalem, it's going to be perfect. It's going to be flawless. The Bible says there's no need of sun or moon there because God and the Lamb will be the light that that illuminates it. It's going to be perfect, magnificent, pure. God says, that's what I want to make out of my people. That's what he's saying to us. It seems impossible right now, doesn't it? If you look at your life, your life may be in shambles. If you look at your family, they may be storm-tossed, not comforted. Things may look really, really bad. If you look at the body of Christ, if you look at the nation, so much division and so many problems, you think, oh, how can this ever be beautiful, Lord? How can you ever make this beautiful? Only God, right? Only God. Verse 13 says, then all your children will be taught by the Lord. Their prosperity will be great and you will be established on a foundation of righteousness. The future is bright. That's the promise of God. That's what keeps us going. That's what gives us hope and faith and courage and causes us to rejoice and burst out in song is because we know that God is the protector and the defender. He's our vindicator. Look at the rest of verse 14. You will be far from oppression. You will certainly not be afraid. You will be far from terror. It will certainly not come near you. If anyone attacks you, it is not me. Whoever attacks you will fall before you. No weapon formed against you will succeed, and you will refute any accusation raised against you in court. God says, I'll deal with the attackers of my people. No weapon or accusation against them is going to succeed. And we're reminded in this Old Testament glimpse of what's to come. Jesus is our advocate. He's our advocate against the accuser, right? That's another glimpse that we get there. I will protect you. I will defend you. And then in verse 17, he says, This is the heritage of the Lord's servants and their vindication, their righteousness, some of your translations say, is from me. This is the Lord's declaration. What's he saying? He's saying you can trust him with your entire life and your eternity. You may not be able to see all that's going to unfold, but Isaiah is giving us a picture that we can cling to. We can trust God. We know that the promises that God has given us in our life will be fulfilled. And yes, there will be seasons of trials. There will be times of trouble. But beyond that, God will bring his people back. He'll restore them. He's making all things new. He's the great redeemer of both people and situations. That's what God does. God takes a person that's broken, and he redeems them unto himself, and he makes them beautiful. He takes a situation that's so messed up, and he redeems it to himself. And He, in that, he does a sweet work of grace, a sweet work of grace. Out of it, things happen. In my own life, things have happened that have been devastating. But if you'll give it to God and trust him for the future, he'll do a sweet work of grace in your life. You will come out of it better than when you went into it. You can trust God with your future. This is how we can truly experience peace in the middle of a storm. There's so many other stories in the Bible where we can see, you know, Ruth and Naomi, Joseph, even Mary and Joseph, where we can see these were helpless, hopeless situations, but God helped them. And they followed God's God's plan right out of the storm and into the fulfillment of his promise. The Apostle Paul understood that time and again in this New Testament this New Testament character, he faced distressing situations such as in 2 Timothy 4.14, where he says, Alexander the coppersmith did me much harm. At my first defense, no one stood with me, but all forsook me. But the Lord stood with me and strengthened me so that the message might be preached fully through me and all the Gentiles might hear. What was Paul's goal? His goal was to be able to testify to the gospel and the power of Christ. He said, Everybody left me. I'm completely deserted. I have no one. I'm in a terrible situation. But the Lord stood with me and he strengthened me so that I could testify to the amazing grace of God in my life. So that I could say I was in a bad situation that I couldn't get out of, but God. That's what will bring people to Christ, right? If I find my way out of a situation, out of a circumstance, people can do that. But if only God can rescue you and redeem you and bring you out of a circumstance or a situation, that is when people will start to listen. That's when people will hear testimony. That's when people's hearts will begin to turn because they'll see there are a lot of situations in my own life I can't find my way out of. But God, Paul's saying, it's okay what I've been through as long as God gives me the strength so that I can get through it, so that I can testify. He says, so that all the Gentiles might hear. I'm a Gentile, so I'm very grateful. God wants in your weakness, when you're destitute, when you're discouraged, when you feel forsaken, maybe you feel forsaken by others. He wants you to know that he'll stand by you. He'll give you courage. He'll give you his strength so you can testify, right? Here's what one of my favorite commentators, Matthew Henry, has to say about this verse. Those that have taken the Lord for their God may take encouragement from their relation to him in the worst of times. It is the duty and interest of all good people, whatever happens, to encourage themselves in God as their Lord and their God, assuring themselves that he can and will bring light out of darkness, peace out of trouble, and good out of evil to all that love him and are called according to his purpose. He says it's our duty to encourage ourself in the Lord. It's in our best interest to encourage ourself in the Lord because he's the one who can strengthen us and has our best interest at heart. And I'm going to close with one last scripture from 2 Thessalonians three sixteen. This is actually a benediction, but I just I love it. It says, may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father who loved us and by his grace gave us eternal encouragement and good hope. May he encourage your hearts and strengthen you in every good deed, and word. Amen, right? Amen. Let's bow our heads. I want to pray for you.